Hello, and welcome to the Healthcare Fraud Shield podcast. This is episode four, uh, although we are doing a, a four-part series in, in the middle there um, of the good, the bad, and the ugly of investigations. And this week uh, is part two, and we are going to talk about medical records today. My name is Karen Weintraub, and I have with me my colleague, Kate Shaker. Hi, Kate. Good morning, Karen. Good to be Good back. Morning. Yeah, absolutely. So today we're going to talk about the fun topic of medical records and, and all that goes into that. So why don't we just get started? And, and what's the first thing that um, you need to uh, figure out and assess when you're when you're looking at getting medical records? Well, I think you need to develop a strong lead first. So it's a good, viable lead where you really think the next step is requesting medical records. You don't want to overburden a provider by just frequently requesting records and then nothing develops from that. And I think we had a pretty good track record. If we requested records, 90% of those turned into a case where we would have some type of recruitment or other action. How about you? Were yours pretty solid like that as well? Absolutely. Um, most of the most of the providers, we had a pretty good response rate. Uh, we didn't have too much of a problem. Once in a while, uh, you might have a little bit of pushback um, getting some records, but most most were were pretty smooth transactions. And how many? I guess my point was how many of those times you requested records developed into a case? Was it the majority? I mean, it was a good solid lead where it ended up in an action. Yeah, I mean, we typically wouldn't have requested records unless we had a, a solid, um, you know, you know, set of uh, information in, at the beginning of the lead. But after getting the records, I'd say well over fifty percent, maybe even higher, seventy five percent were were you know worth worth getting the records for uh, because we really didn't want to request records unless we had a really solid um, case built up first. So how many records did you request? We just cherry picked records because our state frowned against extrapolation. So um, we would just usually request about a dozen and then request more if needed. I think your process was a little different in your state. Yeah, it, it depends. And, and we were in several states. Um, so depending on the case and the size of, of the, the member population and the size of the records um, that were there, um, but we actually did um, statistical sampling, statistically random sampling. Um, so we would be able to identify a population of records based on the issue at hand. Um, and then we could identify a, a statistically valid random sample based on that. And then we would request records. Um, but again, depending on the case, it could have been, you know, a couple of dozen types of records uh, or in some cases, depending on the nature of the services, uh, it could have been hundreds. Um, so it did vary. But I'd say uh, the majority were more in the, you know, kind of few dozen here and there. OK. Yeah. And I think you have to remember to always check in house to see if you have any records that maybe have come into another department. So if you have that ability to access them, it's always a good idea to take a look because that could give you an idea of uh, what you're going to find when you request your sample. So it's a good thing to try to keep in mind. Yeah, absolutely. I think we talked about that in our last podcast with the when we did the uh, audits uh, where I had some in advance before I went to uh, the office and they were altering the ones that I had and I would re had re-requested those same records and they were altering them. So uh, definitely agree with that. Yeah. 
So another tricky part, I think some investigators struggle with, especially new investigators, is what what part of the record or parts of the record do you request when you are going to do a full review? And I think this is where experience is important. And I had experience working in a provider's office, so I thoroughly knew all the pieces of a medical record. But you want to make sure you don't request to the entire record. It can be voluminous if you don't need it. So uh, always keep that in mind. Uh, ask your other investigators who have more experience to make sure you're requesting the right pieces. You don't also don't want to request uh, too little because you'll get the records and say, oh, I should have requested the radiology reports or the consultation reports, something like that. So how about you? Did you have, how did you approach that? Sure. Um, with every set of record requests, we had kind of a checklist mm -hmm. and we would go through and, and, and determine um, in advance, you know, is this something we might need? Um, you know, whether it's uh, some of the initial paperwork that patients fill out or, um, you know, ledgers of signatures to, you know, prescription, um, you know, information. So we would actually go through and make sure we had everything we needed in advance. Um, but depending, again, on the case, since we were doing extrapolation, we um, could potentially hone in on particular dates of service or particular procedure codes. So it varied by case, um, but, uh, but I agree, you know, you don't always want to request more than you need. However, there are some scenarios where you really need to see kind of that continued care um, to, in order to be able to determine um, whether whatever you're looking at is appropriate or not. So it was on a case-by-case -case basis, but we were very careful, went through a checklist in advance to make sure we were um, requesting the appropriate items that we, that we needed. Right. What length of time did you give the providers to, re to, uh, return the records? Uh, first return request, uh, would be 30 days, uh, and then a, a 15 day follow-up, um, which is kind of mirrors some of the, the regulatory guidelines. I know it varies a little bit. Um, how about yourself? Yeah. It's about the same time frame, And then we send a third and final notice. And then if we didn't get a response on the third notice, then we would call the provider's office. Sometimes we would pull the provider relations representative in to call the office. Um, and I think in a case or two, we would send the provider a letter and just say, you've not responded to any of our, our requests or phone calls, and we will be on site uh, at X date. And so be prepared to provide, you know, a number of medical records. And that got it a response a hundred percent of the time. So did you ever take that tactic? Now, fortunately we had providers that were within a driving range of our corporate office. So it wasn't a problem. Yeah, we, we would have to, well, first we'd have to check um, the contract uh, to make sure we, we were allowed to do that. Um, so in some cases we would inform them that we were going to be showing up in other cases, depending on your plans and what they allow, we could put a hold on claims um, and request start to request records on all claims coming in. Um, so it really depends on what your policies are, what your states mm -hmm. allow, and all of that. But those were a couple of the different options that that we could proceed with. And, do, and in your request, did you include an attestation for the provider to sign? Absolutely. Always want to make sure that they agree that this is the full set of the records that we requested. Uh, many of the times uh, folks would come back and say, oh, we didn't give you everything um, all of a sudden after the fact. So we wanted to make sure um, that uh, they agreed that they sent us everything that we requested.
And did you have any difficulty getting records from non-PAR providers versus PAR providers? Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. What was, what was your response? Usually no response. So we may have to flag their provider ID and, and request records when the claims came in. So it could be trickier to get non-PAR. Most of our business was PAR providers though. So it was not as frequent. Yeah, we, we had similar experiences. Uh, many of them would say that they weren't obligated, although um, under HIPAA and also under the, the members um, contract uh, with the insurance company, they are required. Um, so we would take that route. We, um, of course, had legally approved language to um, send out to to those uh, providers. But uh, if they still didn't respond, then again, we could put their um, claims on hold, potentially assuming that we weren't that we were in line with any uh, legal and regulatory um, issues. Uh, but that was one possibility. And how far back did you go with your request? claims so uh depended yeah it depends um you know it depends on the state uh some states actually allow you to go back more uh than others but uh, we were we were able to go back several years uh, we would usually go back uh three to five years okay yeah and how about your contract with your providers are stipulated uh, either 12 or 18 months so we had to rely you know on our contract with a provider not all of our contracts had that in there. Some mm-hmm. did. Um, some say, you know, 12 months or 24 months, um, but a lot of them didn't have it. So, so again, checking the contract first, if it had it, of course, you abide by what the contract says. And if it didn't have it, then we had a little bit more flexibility mm-hmm. um, depending on, on how the, the review is classified, because uh, again, every state has some different regulations on what you're uh, allowed to investigate and, and the type of investigation, how far All back right. you can go. And be careful about if it's based on the paid date of the claim or the date of service or the date the claim is submitted. So be careful. You have to always be careful about what that language says specifically. So you're following that. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, okay. So we got the records requested and they've come in. So we've got a stack of records and usually uh, I'd say currently we're going to get most of those electronically versus when they would come in a big box. Uh, I think it's more frequently now we're going to get them sent faxed or sent electronically in some method. So um, we would tally the records against our list, uh, data service by data service, member by member, and seeing if we've got got received what we've requested. I hate when they come and they're all scrambled up. I think we just had a recent case at Healthcare Fraud Shield where a thousand pages came and they were all mixed up. So they could be upside down, out of order. And it was a real nightmare for the investigator to go through all those records time after time after time to make sure she got all the, all the dates of service for that member. I think sometimes they do that on purpose (laughs) and we don't print them. So we really, um, refrain against printing the records. So it's tricky. Yes. We, many a time when they're out of order and, and what always, what always got me is when they were randomly stapled everywhere. So you had to take all the staples out in order to, in order to scan them in. Okay, so we have our records, we have them in somewhat of an order, and then we start reviewing them and documenting the findings. 
Karen, you had talk about how, you know, our system now has that ability to just where we can record everything right in the system. Sure. Yeah. I mean, back in the day, you know, everyone used either Access or Excel. Um, you know, nowadays, uh, you know, we've gotten a little bit more sophisticated. Uh, you know, we've got um, in our system, we're able to, to track the claims as part of the case and document all of your findings inside the case, which, of course, you know, is a nice, nice way to keep it all together. Um, to summarize the findings, summarize the potential overpayment to be able to produce um, to produce a findings letter uh, back to the provider, so which is which is really right. nice. So, and then when you send your findings, did you usually do it by mail, electronic? Did you deliver them in person? Most of the times, we would do a certified mm -hmm. letter. Um, yeah, once in a while we would deliver it in person, uh, but most of the times it was a certified letter. How, how about yeah, your team? Yeah, also certified letter. And then if they wanted an electronic uh, uh, document afterwards, which sometimes they requested, we would send it electronically. Um, but it just reminds me of a, a time we had an oopsie. We had We were doing a project where we were, I think, do auditing facilities uh, for the same sort of issue in each facility. And so the investigator who was assigned to that project would just edit the document, the overpayment document and change the facility name, the amount they owed, but pretty much the issue stayed the same. And she sent, did not send a PDF and she sent where the provider could see the track changes and so she, they could see where that one facility was crossed out, their facility name was put in, how much the overpayment was for the other facility comments. So that was a disaster and an embarrassment. So, and then one time we had a, where the same sort of thing, it was a project and there were a number of letters going out to uh, DME providers, I believe. And the investigator mixed up the put the one overpayment letter in the other provider's envelope. And we found out when the provider got the overpayment and it was addressed to another DME provider. So that was also embarrassing. So after that, we instituted a procedure where we had to have another person check the envelopes, believe it or not, make sure everything was in the right envelope and it was being delivered to the right person. So I don't know if you've had any experiences Good. like that. So. Yeah, you answered my my next question. What what did you, the plan that you worked for? What was the protocols that yeah, they put in place yeah, afterwards? Yeah, uh, so that it had to be uh, yeah. initialed by another investigator, another uh, staff member that they checked it and everything was correct. So, yeah, yeah, we we never had that issue, but we did always we did um, make sure we QC'd everyone's um, letters that went out just to just to make sure, yeah, it all looked correct and and um, we weren't um, putting anything in there that we shouldn't. Uh, that's always always a good thing. And some some plans, I know they, you know, some of their letters go through legal departments. Some of them, they the investigators do them themselves. So it all just varies. Uh, but a QC process yeah. is is Ours always, always went through the legal department. And we also had a fraud, waste, and abuse committee, which was comprised of high level department heads throughout our company. So claims would be there, provider relations, quality management, um, provider relations. So I don't know if you had anything like that. And then we would present the cases and then make a determination how we were going to proceed. 
Yeah, my experience, we were we did not have to go through um, that route, uh, but in some some instances, we did mm-hmm. have to confer with legal. Yeah. Okay. And let's see. So, what do you do when you let's go back to getting the records again? What do you do uh, when you get records and they're not legible? So they're handwritten and they're a mess. Yes. <laughs> they're not legible. Yes. Well, first thing I would do is I would go to one of our resident uh, medical directors and ask them if they could read it, uh, you know, thinking that they speak the same language. Um, in some cases, they could and some some they could not. Uh, and if they couldn't read it because, we, you know, you always want to have that, you know, multiple person, two person rule. If two people can read it, then then it's OK. Um, then uh we would go back to the provider, uh, depending again on contract and state um, information. Some states actually have in their their board of medical regulations about um, in making sure that you can read the the records that they're legible, and you can even require that they transcribe them. Um, so if we couldn't understand it, we would ask them to transcribe it uh, and um, provide us additional information in either, uh, you know, a typed form or some other way that one, we could uh, read it. Remember the one case we had uh, acupuncture physician provided the records and they were all in Chinese. You remember, do you remember that? Yeah. So yeah. They had a beautiful cover yes. letter all yes. in English, but all the records were in uh, Chinese. So we had to have them interpreted. I think we had them, someone at the plan who was fluent in that language and interpret them for us. So Yes, that's helpful. Uh, we did have access to a language line if we needed assistance, but um, getting, you know, if you can, if you can have someone interpret or have the provider transcribe it, if, if you have some kind of regulation that you can hold them to, that's always, that's always yeah. the best route. And sometimes there'll be abbreviations you don't know. So it's important to ask them, go back and ask them for a key to their homegrown abbreviations and signatures can be tricky as yes. well. So you cannot decipher the signatures. So we would rely on um, state guidelines and also Medicare has a great uh, document on acceptable signatures. We relied on that quite a bit. So signatures can be tricky or they're not dated. Um, How about you? Did you, how'd you approach that? Yeah, absolutely. Always, always double check the signatures, always made sure we follow the appropriate guidelines. And if we couldn't understand a signature or could not understand an abbreviation, uh, I would take a kind of a snapshot of a signature, send it back to the plan via either, you know, secure encrypted email or fax or whatever, whatever you've got at your fingertips and, and ask them to interpret for me, whose signature is this? What is this? So whatever we couldn't identify, we would seek to get that information uh, from, right. from the provider's office. Requesting records, you could also request a signature log and provide them that form to fill out who, who are all the providers or folks that may be signing the medical records, have them list their name, their title, and a signature. So that can be helpful as well. Absolutely. Yep. That's one right, of the things exactly. you can request from the get-go. Exactly. Well, I think that's about all the trips and ticks, trips and ticks, <laughs> tips and tricks uh, that I have for record requests. Anything else you'd like yeah. to add? You can think of? Yeah. I mean, I know, 
I, I know last week we talked about on-site audits. So of course, you know, we're talking about records um, in general, but obviously there can be some differences with whether you, the records are coming to you or whether you're picking them up. So um, it's always a slightly different experience, um, you know, with, with different uh, pros and cons to each one, but uh, yeah. And I think um, the next few sessions will, will start to, to round out uh, sessions, podcasts, whatever, yep. whatever we're doing right now, right? <laughs> we'll start to round out the, the rest of what happens in an investigation. So um, we're, we're yeah. looking forward to continuing that to you, conversation. Karen. All right, yes. you too, Kate. All right, thank you so much. And uh, till till thank we uh, speak again, everyone. Thank you.